Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is Season 7, Episode 1, Caladan, covering Book 1, Dune, Chapters 1 to 6. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book and this series. My name is Dan, and I have only read up to this part of the book, and I have not I have seen neither movie. Welcome back. So this is Talia. I have read Dune before. It was a long time ago, and I have not read all the way up to Chapter House, but I have read the first five books by Frank Herbert. I do not waste my time with any of the prequels by his son, Brian Herbert, and I did see the Dune movie twice. Uh, however, this will be a spoiler-free episode, so we'll just be reading the parts that we have posted on the reading list. Hi, this is Priya. I have only read up to this point in the books, and um, I have also watched the uh, the recent movie, not the older one, um, which I very much enjoyed, so I was excited to uh, delve into the book. This is Amin, and I have only read up to the current chapter, but I have also I've seen both of the movies, and I also have laughed hilariously at the Spice Dow who paid $3 million for an NFT of Dune to realize they own nothing <laughs> because NFTs are fake. <laughs> Hot take. I forgot to mention, yes, I've seen both movies since this has once been called the, the unfilmable book. Uh, people have been trying to adapt this for like 40 years. And there's a David Lynch 80s movie and there's a miniseries from I think 2000, 2001. There have been a lot of adaptations, but we're on a new reboot of, it, of them right now. I didn't even know there's a miniseries. I haven't seen that either. The miniseries is worth watching. Yeah. It is probably the best. Well, we'll see. Okay. Uh, and, and like Talia mentioned, uh, we have the reading list up on the website. I will say it's a little difficult to break down this book and to convey the information because there's no chapter numbers in some uh, versions of the book. I'm reading the ebook. Uh, apparently, Priya has a different version of the ebook that does have chapter numbers. They are like discrete segments of book <laughs> of the book parts that seem like chapters um so you can kind of want kind of along with us and then i put in the reading list like the end line that's the start of the next chapter that you're where you're supposed to stop reading if you're really reading along with us uh i know it's confusing we're trying our best with the with what we have it's an old book with a lot of adaptations and there's no consistent chapter numbers <laughs> like the bible yeah <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> oh, hot takes here. And that's because we've been gone for six months, apparently, uh, looking at the last recording. Uh, so I wanted to just do a quick roundtable of what we've been doing for the past six months. I've been reading anything or watching anything or anything that's come up. So for me, you know, our last our last show was based off of the uh, Foundation series by Asimov. So I actually come up crazy reading a bunch of Asimov stuff after that. I read The uh, Foundation's Edge which is right after that, which is a sequel, which I highly recommend if you did like those books. And then I read uh, the robot series, the Caves of Steel, Naked Sun, mm. found a, uh, Robots and Empire. And there was another one that I can't remember the name of. Um, it's the, yeah, the, the robot series. I didn't, not including iRobot, but the ones with um, with uh, our Daniel and the, and the other guy that I forgot his name already. <laughs> anyway, I read those. They're all right. People, I've heard other people say that like they're just as good as Foundation, but I don't, I, I don't buy that. Uh, they're if you're into like detective stories, like it's pretty interesting, but they get a little bit of formulaic uh, towards the end. And I mean, if you have nothing else to read, they're they're not terrible. But I just think they're not as good as Foundation. And so, 
Uh, I think my next book that I'm going to be reading that's not part of this podcast is probably Foundation and Earth, which is the sequel, the, the last sequel in the series. And the reason I did it that way, because people are saying that the robot series, knowing the robot series is pretty, will make it better, uh, the Foundation and Earth better. So I read that uh, in, in between. So that's been my six months here. Uh, how about uh, Talia? You've been reading or watching anything interesting? Oh boy, nothing as thematic as your exploration of Asimov. Um, I read Under a White Sky because I've been worried about the climate. And I also, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on podcast, but moved to the West Coast. So Dan and I are in the same time zone, which helps the podcast record. Um, and that's why I did it. Fun fact. Yep. <laughs> You're dedicated to the show. Appreciate it. <laughs> Very dedicated. Six month sabbatical notwithstanding. Very dedicated. Uh, how about you, Amin? I have not been reading anything much. Uh, I changed jobs recently, so that takes up a lot of time. I have been watching old movies, so I subscribe to the Criterion channel, and I've just been watching random old foreign films, and I don't have any great recommendations, but there's some good ones and there's some not good ones. So that's what I've been doing for the last even longer than six months because I wasn't part of the Foundation podcast. Yeah, I probably haven't seen Amin in over a year. Well, definitely over a year. I don't remember when the last uh, Death End podcast came out. But welcome yeah. back. Yeah, welcome back, Amin. Thanks for picking this book. How about you, Priya? Oh, boy. So the past few months have been a bit of a blur. I can't believe that it has been six months, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I had a child at home all summer bouncing around. So I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you what I did the past few months because it was just chaos. <laughs> I think I read one book, which is kind of sad, but it was like on how to communicate better or something. So um, that counts as reading, right? Sure. Um, my list of books to read um, has grown, but I could not, I honestly could not tell you what my list is comprised of either off the top of my head. <laughs> I am rereading the Silmarillion because the because of the Rings of Power show, uh, which is, uh, you know, it could be its whole other podcast to talk about my feelings on that. But to, you know, to kind of calm myself down, I'm rereading the Silmarillion. So that's what I'm doing alongside reading um, Dune. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. <laughs> All right, well, I think let's just jump into the summary. So Talia wrote this one, so thank you very much. The emperor who commands Chom has withdrawn control of the spice planet Arrakis from the Harkonnens to Duke Leto, the head of the Atreides family. It is revealed that the Harkonnens lived with an adversarial relationship with the native population, sneering at them, hunting them for sport, and undercounting their population, seeing them as an obstacle to a profit margin for the spice collection. Jessica advises Paul to tell the truth to the Reverend Mother, her former Benny Jesuit teacher. The Reverend Mother subjects Paul to the test of the Gomjabar, which tests his very humanity. By passing it, she informs him he may be the Kwisatz Haderach. A brief chapter at House Harkonnen introduces the grossly fat Baron, his mass held up by suspenders, and his mentat, who has managed to break the sook conditioning that prevents inflicting harm. They laugh together about the trap the Duke is entering by taking control of Arakeen. The Baron's nephew, Fade Rautha, watches and listens to their interactions, knowing that the closer he is to secret discussions, the closer he is to power. The Baron plans to betray and assassinate the Duke, and has ransomed off the Duke's woman, Lady Jessica, to his mentat as a reward. 
The Baron is already bickering with his mentot and privately believes it is time to end him as well. The Reverend Mother meets with Jessica and Paul and in answer to the conditions of Arrakis announces that the Missionaria Protectiva has been to Arrakis already and softened it up. Paul dreams of a Fremen girl on Arrakis. At Jessica's words, Paul reveals this to the Reverend Mother and reveals a prophetic vision of telling the strange girl about the conversation they were having at that very moment, promising to the Reverend Mother, I will know her. Thufir Hawat warns Paul of the natural ecology of their new planet and claims that Arrakis has special problems and satellite control is too costly for the Atreides house to afford. At Paul's request, he also reveals the habits of the Fremen, the natural inhabitants of the desert planet, who, who wear still suits to reclaim their body's own water, recycling every drop of moisture, which has a profound effect on Paul. He is met by Gurney Halleck, who provokes him to train by sparring. They fight using shields, which allow in only slow blades, and rebuff quick attacks, and Gurney's prowess reinstills Paul's admiration for the weapons master. Paul seeks more information about the Fremen from the suck conditioned doctor, Dr. Yue, whom the chapter headings have warned is remembered as a traitor of history. Dr. Yue's description of the fierce native inhabitants with a diet saturated with the spice melange who live in harmony with the fatal desert, writing poems to knives and training their children to be warriors. Paul's inner thoughts are all of the utility of winning these people as allies. Finally, Paul and his father, Duke Leto, speak about the political necessity of taking control of the Padishah Emperor's spice planet, knowing that the Harkonnens have been stockpiling the spice and are well positioned to sabotage the Atreides endeavor. His father shares the same ambition to realize the potential of the Fremen as a fighting corps. Leto prepares him for his first trip off of Caladan and at Jessica's wishes takes it upon himself to tell Paul he has been trained as a mentat in secret since infancy but accepting the mantle is his choice a mentat duke would be formidable and Paul accepts so the first part has a long list of characters both those who appear in the text and those who are alluded to in those chapter headings that Priya mentioned so Without further ado, the characters in part one are the Princess Irulan, the author of the Manual of Muad'Dib, which appears in epigraph with the chapter headings, Duke Leto Atreides, the patriarch of the Atreides house, the Lady Jessica, the Duke's consort and mother to Paul, a graduate of the Bene Gesserit training who disobeys the order to bear only female children, Paul Atreides, the son of Duke Leto and Lady Jessica, Fufir Hawat a loyal master of assassins for the House Atreides and a trained mentat. Gurney Halleck, one of Paul's principal teachers, along with Duncan Idaho and Thufir Howat. In addition to being a military general, he is a minstrel who recites poems and verses from the Orange Catholic Bible. The Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, a senior Bene Gesserit employed as the Emperor's truth-sayer. The Baron Harkonnen, the adversarial house's patriarch. Fade Ralpha, favored nephew to the Baron Harkonnen. Peter, a mentat under the employee of the Baron Harkonnen. Dr. Yue, a souk doctor who works for House Atreides. Liet Kynes, Shaddam IV's planetary ecologist on Arrakis. And uh, Chome, which is the intergalactic commercial monopoly, which operates on spice. 
And I guess just a quick history about this chapter um, that I pulled from Wikipedia, but I think it's still written pretty well here. It says, Dune is a 1965 epic science fiction novel by American author Frank Herbert, originally published as two separate serials in Analog Magazine. It is tied with Roger Zelanzi's The Immortal for the Hugo Award in 1966, and it won the inaugural Nebula Award for Best Novel. It is the first installment of the Dune Saga. In 2003, it is described as the world's best-selling science fiction novel. And I know that, like, we have mentioned this before, but apparently there's been three adaptations of it. Uh, the original, or I, don't know if, I don't know which came first, the David Lynch movie or the, the miniseries. And then there's the new uh, movie that came out like a year ago, whatever it was. And I think there's a second bar coming out pretty soon. So I guess let's just jump into discussion. So I, I can kind of kick it off. Um, and just my general impression is like, I was super confused. <laughs> like, I, like there's so many characters and so many, th- like they just, he just kind of like dumps you into this world. And like, you just have to, and it's like, I felt like I was like drowning in like all this like uh, mm-hmm. world building and mythology. And like, I, I found it really hard to, to kind of climb my way back up. I, I think like the only part that I, that, that I started feeling like, uh, more closely was like when he was doing the the sword the the dueling with the with the guy that I forgot his name of <laughs> the gurney right gurney Halleck yeah, yeah. gurney Halleck I'm, that that part was was I, I caught that part but all like the the very seemed very mystical and very foreign and <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. like I kind of get that like it, it seems like the that Paul is the he's the son right he's like the heir apparent uh, to to the duke. And there's a lot of stuff that happens with that and maybe like dreams and, um, and, uh, and like prophecy and that kind of thing. Um, but it, yeah, it's, to me, it was super confusing and it, it actually made me think like, maybe I should go watch the movie. I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, is I, I was just about to say, Dan, that might I take this opportunity to make a plea to watch the movie because, yeah. um, I actually spoke about this, uh, with my brother-in-law, sometime during that blur of a summer <laughs> or maybe even earlier. I, my mind's a blur. But um, he told me basically that he started reading um, Dune um, and he had the same noble intention of wanting to read the book before watching the movie. And he found himself super confused and kind of lost. Um, and then he just caved and watched the movie. And then he went back to the book and he said that it made a lot more sense now. Uh, kind of just a suggestion that you might benefit from. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like which which movie is do, do you think uh, I should start with? I mean, or, I've only watched the the new one, and I would advocate for that. Yeah, Kali, you've you've seen all of them, right? So, like, would would that be the best one? I, I don't know if they're gonna watch all three of them, but like, is mm-hmm. which one is the best one? I guess for for me to kind of just like a, a better surface level understanding of of what's happening. I'm actually going to zag instead of zigging because I had the same impression when I first read Dune and um, my friend who gave me uh, their copy, Pretty Big Evangelist of the series, uh, told me, you know, give it 100 pages uh, because I was lost and I was like, I've heard a lot about this Paul guy, but I really don't know what he's about. Everyone seems to think he's brilliant. Uh, Where? Um, and I was told to wait a hundred pages and it worked for me. So that's going to be my plug for now. Keep at it. I yeah. Mean, maybe, maybe I'll give it till next episode. And then, uh, if, <laughs> if it's still confusing to me, then I'll, I'll just break down and watch the movie. Like I have a pretty, pretty spoiler averse, uh, personality, but yeah, like I'm also want to understand what's happening. So yeah, I'll, I'll give it another episode. I think. Yeah. I I'd say that 
if I hadn't seen the movies, I would, I would have let this book go because it I felt the same as Dan. I felt I've seen the movies and I felt it was a lot of exposition and uh, world building, which I understand is important, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't done in a way that was really engaging to me. And, you know, kind of having seen the movies, obviously I saw the more recent one more recently. So that one's fresher in my memory. It helped me connect some dots that I don't think I would have connected otherwise. Um, I guess if I was doing the podcast, I would have struggled through the book. But um, yeah, <laughs> the, so the, funny. Wa- watching the movie really helped. Y'all sound like me when I was reading <laughs> Foundation and suffering through many chapters. I really... I TV show gave me like the the motivation to keep, you know, <laughs> forward. Well, feel free to watch the movie, Dan. I obviously I have no problem with that. I, I advocate for the movie. But for my own personal sensibilities, I watched that film and I sat in the theater thinking, why is anyone enjoying this if they haven't read the book? Oh, yeah. 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 Because because of uh, Timothy Chalamet. That's why they're enjoying it. And Zendaya. <laughs> I, maybe, but he can't and carry like that. 11 hours of exposition if you don't know what's going on. And Oscar <laughs> Isaac. <laughs> There's a lot to enjoy. I felt like in Foundation, like they did a better, he did a better job of like c- telling you who the people were at least. Like it, it, in this way, it felt like I missed like a first section of the book, right? <laughs> like like there should have been like a, like another couple chapters that like preceded this to like tell me who these people are. Like um, I have a question, Dan. Yeah. Do you understand more after the chapter summary than after reading the chapter itself? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So talk about that. So what do you think (laughs) based on how I've chosen to introduce the first six chapters um, about the characters that we have and who you're focusing on and maybe what you expect? I mean, it seems like Paul is definitely like the focus, right? Like, you know, he's the heir apparent. Um, He's, I mean, it seems like he's going to be the main character that we're going to kind of follow. Why? I mean, because he's, that's just like that, a typical trope, right? Like this is the. He well, more like, importantly, he's human. Like oh, that's okay. that's the outcome of the test, right? The the test that oh, the that's, mother gives. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I didn't realize anyone wasn't human. I guess. No, I remember that in the text now. Yeah, like that was like part of the test. Like, oh, you're actually human. And then like he also has like some mental abilities, right? Um, or I'm, I'm assuming that that's what Mentat means is some kind of mental abilities. Well, we've seen two fully fledged Mentats in the first part. Um, if you remember, that's Peter, who's occasionally introduced as a twisted Mentat because uh, mm-hmm. he's able to break this suit conditioning. And um, Fifer Hawat, who's the Atreides, like not to run into that trope, but the good guy, the good Mentat, good and bad Mentat. And they're able he- to... He seemed like kind of a jerk. <laughs> like, oh, yeah? I, was like, I don't know. Like when he was talking, like it, th- I think that's why I like the, uh, the, the second guy, the, the sparring partner more. Cause like the, yeah, that, that first guy, he just seemed like, I don't know, like he just seemed kind of a jerk. And then the other guy came in like really like loose attitude and like, I oh, would spar or whatever. And like, they just seemed to be having fun. And it was like, oh, okay, now they're having fun. Everything seems really serious up to that point. And there's no mm-hmm. like, well, he's a minstrel, like he writes poems and songs and is yeah. there to lighten, you know, serious business. But the reason I chose to introduce the uh, the chapters, sorry, not the chapters, I chose to introduce the characters this way is because Paul is surrounded by a lot of these, frankly, like trainers and political 
figures and they can blur together, especially in the beginning, because there's talk of Duncan Idaho and like Gurney the Valorous and Fifi Hawat. And then there's his relationship with his father, which he obviously has a lot of stock in, but we see very little of the Duke Leto. Uh, yeah. So it is important to, you know, if, if you're going to keep Paul at the center, understanding the ways that these people do relate to Paul. And I have more to say about each of these teachers, but not to the spoiler reverse uh, <laughs> okay. hosts and audience members. Okay. I will say that for me, um, having been spoiled by the movie, it doesn't quite feel like being spoiled because as I am reading the actual prose of the book, which I feel like the movie does a pretty decent job of like incorporating into the film as like a, a tone and a vibe of like, you know, um, of, of this, I would say the, the tone itself is set in a certain way by how the prose is and because of the prose is why I enjoy reading the book. I think it has less to do so far for me uh, with plot points um, and more to do with how it's written and like certain philosophical ideas that are um, explored. And that's why I think my, my favorite parts are, um, are Paul's interactions with the Reverend mother and um, this explore exploration of what it means to be human um, and there are just so many like lovely quotes that are interspersed throughout that dialogue, which I mm-hmm. like found myself like constantly highlighting. So I would say like I really enjoyed the chapters that I read so far, but the part that particularly had my attention was the interaction between the Reverend Mother and Paul. Yeah, and that was like the test, right? When she was when when he was doing the the, yes. the test. Yeah. I will say that I don't think of this series as quite as prone to spoilers, I think, as Priya was mentioning, as something like Asimov, which really has some very satisfying payoffs if you stick with it. Uh, there are yeah. some hauntingly beautiful prose and some very, like, I feel like when Herbert wrote this, he knew that this is going to be very quotable. I mean, he starts his own chapters with quotes that he wrote. Yeah. So I think he <laughs> knows um, just how snappy some of the texts are, but it's not as you know, this plot development will happen. And I think part of that is written in because, you know, we've already seen prophecy and visions and prescience already becoming part of this novel. So they're spoiling it themselves. Like they're looking into the future. I will know her. It's kind of like um, Lucy Shin, haven't called him out yet. (laughs) Kind of like how Lucy Shin kind of pats himself on the back for writing those fairy tales. I think that's that's how the the quotes at the beginning of chapters sometimes read. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if like just the writing style of me, because like I said, I've been reading so much Asimov, like, you know, his writing style is obviously like more, you know, to the to the point um and you know matter of fact um and not like i mean there's a lot of like cool quotes in there but like it's uh it's th- yeah this one it seems more like poetic i guess and uh, maybe that's why it's just harder harder to read uh to start with for me not knowing anything that's so interesting how like like different readers hone in on different like aspects of or different types of writing like there's writing that's like very plot focused and then there's writing that's like ideas focused and I feel like even if the plot is moving along I tend to tune out if like the prose is kind of suffering as a result oh really (laughs) yeah 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I would say the same. I think if the prose is good, I'm willing to tolerate a lot more than than if the plot is good and the prose isn't, I guess. That's what happens in Ready Player One. Very interesting concept, uh, interestingly explored, but the prose is so painful. I, it really breaks it for me when I'm rolling my eyes or like thinking how clumsily something was uh, exposed. Uh, I am with Amin on that one. Just out of curiosity, total tangent, but did that movie do that book justice? Well, yeah, you don't have to read it. So it's, <laughs> I, I liked it. Um, yeah. I even read Ready Player Two because apparently I'm a masochist um, <laughs> and uh, read the Pandemic Era sequel. And I would see a movie adaptation of that too. They're both fine. Yeah, I, I thought the movie was good. I haven't read the book though because I've heard the same thing about the book that it's not, it's not the most... Um, engaging it's pretty inelegant (laughs) how do you mean that it's inelegant like it's just like poorly written or it's just a style that doesn't match your like Um, what what you like how can i say this in a way that is constructive um (laughs) burn you made lots of money so i'm like whatever he's he's a very puerile take on someone's aspirational views of what science fiction is like they've clearly read and are familiar or not even science fiction, but like dystopian fiction, you know, all in the same genre, fantasy, dystopia, science fiction. They've clearly consumed a lot of media, but what's more present in the text is their appreciation of consuming this media rather than creation. Oh, I see. It's like, oh, yeah, well done. I saw your fourth allusion to tetris i also remember the 80s existed (laughs) like what else have you done for me what are you producing but you know the movie was high budget spielberg got involved um it was it's an interesting it's like a potato crisp book (laughs) you'll swallow it and it (laughs) will be enjoyable at some points and then you'll feel a little worse afterwards okay um i know you guys had a bunch of quotes that you wanted to go over uh I, i don't know who had what but maybe um yeah, we just start going through them and, and say, and you know, why do you pick them out? I believe I added the first set of three. The first quote is something that Paul is mulling over in his mind, I believe, before he um, has his meeting with the Reverend Mother. And this just kind of stood out to me because it just kind of established Paul for me as someone who is like very thoughtful and has has considered all of these things. And I it just kind of... Like if the test is going to be, are you a human? It just kind of establishes right off the bat that he he is. He understand. He seems to understand through lessons that he has been taught that yeah, he is a human. Um. Mm-hmm. So the quote is, "Animal consciousness does not extend beyond the given moment, nor into the idea that its victims may become extinct. The animal destroys and does not produce." Animal pleasures remain close to sensation levels and avoid the perceptual. The human requires a background grid through which to see his universe, focused consciousness by choice. This forms your grid. Bodily integrity follows nerve blood flow according to the deepest awareness of cell needs. All things, cells, beings are impermanent. I just thought that that's just such a really razor focused and I don't know, like a unique well-written um, exploration into what it means to be a human versus an animal. Um, because, I mean, we are animals biologically, but there are clearly things that distinguish us from other animals. 
or so we perceive. So um, it's kind of like really, really breaking down your awareness of what your humanity means to you versus what animal, what an animal is. So I found that really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And um, perhaps Talia can speak to where this lesson is from, because um, either I read it, I didn't read this part most recently, so maybe I forgot. Um, But is this like coming from one of his readings or one of his like, like what lesson, where is this lesson coming from basically is my question. Excellent question. Yeah, we do see um, in the first part of this book and in the movie that Paul does have this inquisitive questing nature uh, for knowledge. He is seen like watching archives of the Fremen and learning about the history of the planet that he's moving to and incorporating these teachings and reminding his mother, oh, I think that's a poem from Gurney Halleck. It's an old ballad. But the primary source of his knowledge and his training, I would say all stem from Lady Jessica herself. And, you know, we know that she's a Bene Gesserit. We don't know a lot about the Bene Gesserit order, um, but most of her training, it seems like, has been passed on to Paul. And thank you for the cue up, because I think that the way that he speaks and thinks about body integrity is related to the way that the Reverend Mother, the senior Bene Gesserit, talks about sort of the point of this test or why the Bene Gesserit have their their own mission. And it's very connected to not just being human, but the body itself. We're introduced to that through the truth-saying abilities that obviously exist in this universe. Uh, since she is the emperor's truth-sayer, she takes this drug, which enhances her ability to speak and see truth, because the Bene Gesserit can access, as it says, the body's memory as well as the mind. And as, as the Reverend Mother says, they can only access the feminine memory. Yet there's a place where no truthsayer can see. We are repelled by it, terrorized. It is said a man will come one day and find in the gift of the drug his inward eye. He will look where we cannot, into both feminine and masculine pasts. Your Kwisatz Haderach. So that's this first clue that there's some connection to the body's memory, not just within the living self, but this sense of extinction and the transience of a single person's life that the Bene Gesserit are very interested in or interested in this generational view that goes backwards and forwards in time. That was just very beautiful to me. There's a when he does meet the Reverend Mother, her follow up or not to follow up or to set up rather um, the test that she is um, about to put him through. Uh, she says, um, ever sift sand through a screen, we Benny Jesuit sift people to find humans. And I found that kind of fascinating because it's just not knowing exactly what she means by I want to determine if you're a human. Mm-hmm. It kind of uh, It kind of sets up the idea that you can be a person without being a human because she distinguishes almost between people and humans. I found that very fascinating. Even Paul gets super annoyed at this point. I think he calls her a fatuous witch with a mouthful of platitudes or at least thinks it about her because she is really hard to pin down. Um, It's not surprising to me that Dan is like running in circles trying to (laughs) find out what's happening after coming from such straightforward text as Asimov. Because she is very, like, she's seemingly sincere and also 
abstract at the same time. She obviously takes her roles very seriously and like chastises Jessica for not following the rules and not burying only females. But at least to Paul, with his heightened mental abilities and everything, she's very hard to pin down. Also, that 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 whole bit about her kind of chiding Jessica for not burying a, a female. I am assuming, I'm going to assume that they have certain abilities where they can control the sex of their offspring. Well, there you go. Not explicit, but implicitly in the text, there you are. I mean, I would hope that there is an established and obvious, like, knowledge among the Benny Jesuit that it's a choice because according to our um, sensibilities, it's like, well, how are you supposed to control that? But then you have to like suspend your disbelief and be like, okay, well, probably the Benny Jesuit can control the sex of their offspring, which is, which is very mm-hmm. interesting. And of course, it brings to mind so many questions of like, why, why do they have like, what is the dif- difference between, <laughs> what is the difference between men and women? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're only in part one, so at least for, at least for their intents and purposes, I mean. <laughs> like you mentioned, being uh, scolded for producing a, a female or, or for not producing a female, right? So, but there've been you know his, historical. You said people can't control it, but like people have been persecuted, like you know, like queens of England have been mur- you know killed because they didn't produce a male heir, right? So maybe it's just like. Did you get the same sense that she was chastising Jessica for something that was out of her control? Uh, only from what Priya was just saying, <laughs> not from the text itself. I, I did, I did not get that sense because later on, there's a moment where where Jessica says something like, "I," she says something about how like she just wanted to make the Duke happy, right? <laughs> like, exactly. It meant, so, it meant so much to him that I just gave him what he actually wanted, which gave me the impression that she did have the ability to control. And, and of course, there's this thing that they keep mentioning about the voice, which is not that clearly explained up to this point but um it seems like the voice can um control people in a sense that that's what seems to be implied up to this point and so mm-hmm. if they have like abilities of that kind i would assume that they i can suspend my disbelief and believe that they can have the ability to control the the sex of their child so that's how i read it but it is an unusual idea, even even when you suspend your disbelief, because you're kind of your brain is not wired to think that way. Uh, one thing that wasn't totally clear to me was: are is being a human a good thing? Like it seems like he has exceptional abilities for being a mentap, right? But like he's also a human, right? So is that like is that going to be a problem later on? Because like because everyone is also is not human, I guess. I, I guess like that's one also thing I didn't understand. Like how many? There's not many humans apparently. It doesn't seem to be many. So is that is that going to be Something that's going to be like, looked down upon for. I think Priya's third quote cues this up pretty nicely, if you want to hop into that. So the third uh, series of quotes that I have here is um, another back and forth from this same section between Paul and the Reverend Mother. Once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. Thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind. Thou shalt not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. That was interesting to me because she clearly distinguishes between human and man. Um, again, implying that it's not the same thing. I I think that there's a subtle linguistic difference here, right? Between these two statements, thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind and thou shalt, shalt not make a machine to counterfeit 
a human mind. I think with counterfeit, there is a more of like a sinister intention that's applied there Mm -hmm. versus the likeness of a man's mind. So the specificity of words here seems very important. And of course, it seems like you're kind of, it it was what Dan was describing earlier, You're kind of just like dropped into this world. And I feel like that is possibly intentional because I think you're supposed to kind of feel the way that Paul feels kind of just being dropped in front of this woman who like you know although he's not supposed to know what's going on there's the sense that like oh like how do you not know what we're talking about here how do you not know what's (laughs) going on here the way she speaks matter-of-factly is like well you should know all these things you know or like what I'm saying is so obvious that like how did it not occur to you that's the sense that I get many times and I feel like that's the sense that the reader also gets with this whole you know the book at large as they're just like plunged into this chapter so I, I feel like there's there's a bit of intentionality there yeah, I, th- I think that's a way in a lot of books, right? They kind of just drop you into the world and then like you're just supposed to be immersed, right? And like and learn. But this one's built Not ready hard. player one. They painfully <laughs> walk you through every single tiny, most obvious plot point. There's no trust in the reader whatsoever that they might make a leap. <laughs> right. Sometimes sometimes it just feels like they're like, you know, a good book will assume the best of the reader whereas mm-hmm. like whereas like bad writing just like undermines the reader's intelligence which so true yeah <laughs> i think like most egregiously in ready player one i promise this is the last i'll talk about this on this and this entire season this until season eight. chapter seven <laughs> season um, eight ready player one yeah they like talk about like oh this used to be good and now it got corrupted by all these corporations and now most people are struggling this is dystopia I'm like, well, thanks. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) thanks for putting a lampshade on that. Um, But yeah, you, like readers for the last 60 years, have been dropped into this world. And I think Priya kicked us off really well with um, the impression that counterfeit puts in your mind is somewhat more sinister than, oh, just make. So what do you, well, first off, what do you perceive that they're this society's opinion on machines is from this prescription. Thou shalt not make, whether it's human or man, thou shalt not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. Yeah, I mean, my mind is full of Isomov's three robotic rules. So like that's <laughs> that's that's very fresh in my mind from from reading those books. But yeah, like it's it. So it seems like the, the something happened, right? Like where they had to make these rules. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, someone did make a machine that could counterfeit a human mind. But what's their, what do you think is their impression of machines that can do this? I mean, it seems pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Or and maybe not the machines themselves, but people do who make the machines that can do that, right? Like, but machine, you know, it, it's sort of similar to, to the, the eyes and moth stuff where people have a bad impression of robots in some places because they, they can do these things and they can do stuff like counterfeit people's minds and, you know, you know, maybe at some point in the, in the in the past, like did something that caused some apocalypse or something like that to make humans be so uh, scarce and mm-hmm. rare. So, I mean, iRobot from the 50s and Dune from the 60s, these are far before, you know, thinking machines pose any kind of danger. I know people are pretty ruffled up right now, like stable diffusion is going to take away the job from graphic designers. <laughs> um, and that is like, a real concern that we are grappling with in the 21st century. But this to me um, really does stand the test of time for a book that was written 
six decades ago. I thought you were going to say that people are um, a bit ruffled up right now because Elon Musk just unveiled a robot. <laughs> right. Uh, it doesn't do anything. Well, the Tesla bot for a while. So I mean, yes, but um, I, I watched that thing the other day because my husband is a fanboy and I was like a bit disturbed. I was like, no, this is how it starts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can like lift a piano and it's like try what? and keep the show not too topical. Yeah. But, <laughs> um what stood out to me in uh the discussion and the notable quotes from this section were two things firstly was this theme of the Benny Gesserit meddling they start meddling with things and like maybe they're meddling with their ability to produce sons or daughters and it's not just that though it's the entire order intentionally inserting themselves and I mean the Bene Gesserit are space witches basically they're inserting themselves all over the galaxy and to me that was most prevalent when the Reverend Mother said Arrakis has been softened up somewhat so in advance of their arrival, even though it comes as like a surprise to us, the reader, like surprise, uh, you're getting control of the spice planet and a lot of political tensions are attached to that. And everyone seems to think it's a trap and yet we're still doing it. We're still adapting. Like this wasn't something that they were clearly expecting to happen, but the Bene Gesserit were, or they're expecting someone to need someone in there beforehand. So it's been softened up and we'll see what, that means and how they've prepared this planet. Uh, that remind your your description of that is is reminding me a little bit of psychohistory now. <laughs> <laughs> the second note was a smaller punctilio uh, that probably only Amin will appreciate, uh, but it's the guildsman who is not in a couple adaptations, uh, but he is in, and I hope he makes it into part two of the Dune movie. The navigator it might be called and this character is someone that paul wants to see and uh the duke forbids it saying you know that will compromise our ability to ship like they guard their privacy as much as they guard the spice and it's revealed that this navigator is mutated no longer looks human so again there's that emphasis and question about what it means to be human and it seems obvious that the guildsman is a human but doesn't look it anymore so that's interesting and hope we keep an eye on that. I feel like we cannot end our first episode on Dune without quoting perhaps the most famous quote. Talia probably knows which one I'm about to read out. Kindle tells me 25,872 people highlighted this. <laughs> um, this is this is probably uh, one of the one of the most impactful and one of the more beautiful quotes. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. I thought that was just such a I don't know. It's just so well written. It's so beautiful. Um, and of course, he is he is thinking about this as he is about to face extreme pain and he is able to retain his rational thinking. I, I really found that um, really memorable. <laughs> so I thought we should end on that note. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes and the reading list. Uh, like I mentioned, try to break down the book into 
uh, smaller sections that we're going to go over um, and then a rough approximation of the chapter numbers. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And please join us next time for season seven, episode two, covering the book one, Dune, chapter seven to 12 of Dune by Frank Herbert. The emperor who commands Chome has withdrawn control of the spice planet Arrakis from Harakinus to Duke Ludo, the head of the Atreides family. It is revealed that Harakinus, how, how do you say it? Harakins? Harkonnen. Harkonnens. He actually chose the name Harkonnen because he thought it sounded Soviet. He found it in the archives. Uh, it's actually a Finnish name. Oh, interesting. Or Harkonnen. Harkonnen or Harkonnen. Okay. Uh, it is revealed that Harkonnens lived uh, with an adversarial relationship with the native population, sneezing at them, hunting them for sport, and under... Oh my god, I'm so sorry. That's supposed to be sneering. Oh, you want sne- me to read this? I'm probably the only person who can read my own... <laughs> 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 I'm oh so god. sorry, I didn't catch that type. I was like, did I just... Did I just completely, like, skim over the part where the Harkonnens were sneezing? <laughs> I thought it was like, uh... You know, like, yes. Yeah, I'm uh, so sorry, but you like, sold it so dismiss, well, Dismissing man. them. <laughs> it's like it's like nothing to sneeze at, right? It's like, that, that's that's important. So this is not important because they are sneezing at. <laughs> this, this, is like, this is like an anchorman where you could just put anything in front of Dan and he'll just blindly read it. <laughs> and stand behind it, apparently. I'm so sorry. <laughs>